1: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. We begin, as ever, by catching up on our sailors on the whale ship Swan of Hull, trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the new year of 1837. Each week we have been reading a little from their logbook, which is now kept in the archives of the National Maritime Museum in London. The sailors have been trapped now for almost four months. Life has been terrifying and they are entering a period of intense cold. Even the most minor of events is a major occurrence for these men perched on the cliff edge of
2: their existence. Thursday, 2nd February. Light variable winds the whole of this day, the average of the thermometer being 29 degrees below zero. Latitude by observation, 71 degrees, 30 north. Friday, 3rd of February. Light variable winds the whole of these 24 hours with intensely cold weather. A 330-gallon shake cut up for fuel. Thermometer, 30 degrees below zero. Latitude by observation, 71 degrees, 28 north. Sunday, 5th of February. Light airy winds from the northwest with fine clear weather, the land in sight. Black Hook bears per compass south southeast distant thirty-five miles. This day a bird about the size of a loon was shot near the ship in a hole of water. And, trifling as the circumstance may appear, still to us it is a favorable omen. Divine service performed between decks as usual. The attention and behavior of the men deeply shows with what interest they repaid so solemn an occasion. A 320-gallon shake cut up for fuel, number 79. The thermometer still ranges no higher than 28 degrees below zero. Latitude by observation 71 degrees, 30 north. A loon, the bird which brought them such joy and hope, is
1: about the size of a large duck or a small goose. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode. This week we are exploring the most important book in maritime history. I know that is some claim but I do believe it to be true. We are exploring the history of Lloyd's Register and I spoke with Charlotte Ward, Education and Outreach Coordinator of the excellent Lloyd's Register Foundation's Heritage and Education Centre. The centre contains a library and archive that holds material covering 250 years of maritime history with a particular focus on marine and engineering science and history. The archive is astonishing. It holds over 1.25 million ship plans and survey reports, a historic photograph collection, documents relating to the corporate history of Lloyd's Register and much, much more but how did all of this start? Why was this archive collected? Well, it began with a coffee house run by Edward Lloyd and a book called The Register of Ships, first published in 1764, to give underwriters and merchants an idea of the condition of the vessels they insured and chartered. It's probably safe to say that maritime history from that moment on was fundamentally changed, particularly in relation to safety at sea. Now, today, they are not just the curators of an immense archive, but they are active educators and innovators in the interface between maritime history and you, the public. And they have all sorts of plans and schemes to get people involved in maritime history and in helping to understand their immense archive. And I use that word carefully to describe both the immense scale of the archive and also the quality of it. Charlotte told me more about the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Hi Charlotte, thank you so much for talking to me today.
3: Hi Sam, it's a pleasure.
1: Um, I think we should start with a with a with a brief history of Lloyd's. Is it
3: even possible to do a brief history of Lloyd's, or is it, or not? <laughs> um, it's uh, well, probably not brief, uh, but I'll give it a go. I can do All Lloyd's right Lloyd's Register in a nutshell. Um, so Lloyd's Register started in Edward Lloyd's coffee house in 1760. Um, And Lloyd's Coffee House was on Lombard Street in the city of London. And it was a place where uh, merchant and marine business gathered um, to do their business. Uh, It's the same coffee house that Lloyd's of London started in and Lloyd's List. And we often get mistaken for either one of those. But we're very different to both of them. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Lloyd's of London being more about insurance. Lloyd's List being more about shipping news. And it was sort of getting to that point around 1760 where ship owners and merchants were getting a bit fed up with losing ships around the world, losing cargo, (laughs) Um, you know, losing, unfortunately, losing lives. It was, you know, they could figure out what to do after the ship was lost, claim on the insurance, but there was no thought into what to do before the ship even sailed. So a group of men in the coffee house gathered and thought, actually, maybe we should look at ships even before they sail. Are they safe? Um, Should they be going around the world? And this idea of uh, classification and certification was a relatively new concept, not been done or seen before. um, And they'd said, all right, let's do that. So 1760 was when it all kicked off.
1: And how did it kick off? What did they decide to do?
3: Yeah, so what they did was it started just in, in the UK and they wanted to pull together what's known as the register book, which is the bulk of our collection, our register books. The earliest known surviving one we have is from 1764. We don't know of any prior to that. Um, but if anyone ever stumbles across one from 1760 to 1764, <laughs> please do let us know. it to Lloyd's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we want it. We will take it. Um, so yeah, we it, it was gathering information for these register books. Um, so these gentlemen, as they were at the time, went around the country. They usually were ex-navy, maybe a naval architect, um, shipwrights. You know, sort of that profession they'd go around the country to the various ports and start looking at ships and seeing if they were safe or not. Then the ship would get a a rough classification based on its hull and its outfit with the the rigging. And the classification started, it it can be quite complicated, but starts with A-E-I-O-U and then they get good middling bad. So a ship might get an A-G classification, meaning that it was perfect it could go anywhere in the world. Um, they were quite happy to send it off. But then another ship might get a I-B classification, which is clearly not very good. And they might either say it's best if you destroy it or maybe only keep it coastal or going into Europe. So and did, did they have any
1: authority on, on um, w- w- did their advice have to be taken? If someone turns up and I say I own a boat and um, I own a ship and someone gives me an IB thing and might yeah. say, well, actually, you, I think you're, it's time for you to destroy your ship. I might actually think, well, actually, it's not a very I don't want to destroy my ship. What's their authority? How did that
3: work? Um, yeah. So in the early days, the authority wasn't quite there. Um, it was, you know, the people would pay. So you would pay a fee to have your ship class. So, of course, there was the first thing of saying, well, I'm not going to have. I'm not going to pay for someone to tell me that my ship isn't very good. um, And I'm just going to carry on anyway, because what's the point in this? Um, And initially, those that were paying, it was a case of, oh, well, you know, there's there's a level of respect for the expertise of the surveyor, who, as I said, may have been in any kind of marine, naval background. Um, And it's only really when Lloyd's Register starts to get going in the late um, 18th and, and 19th century, Do ship owners say, actually, it's really good to have this classification because when I want to sell it, I can show its record, like a car having an MOT and and its service history. You kind of go, I'm not going to buy a car that looks like it's on its last legs um, or has never passed its MOT. It's the same with the ship. So Mm -hmm. once the expertise starts building over time, uh, then ship owners go, actually, yeah, I I need that Mm -hmm. good classification. Mm -hmm. And if Lloyd's is telling me it's not very good, then i'm not going to i'm not going to bother with it
1: and this is only british ships it's uh, what what ships did they did they apply this mm. to
3: so initially it was just british ships or any ship in a british port and there was a, a bit of a divide between those ships built in the north and those ships built in the south so a ship would get a classification such as ag And then after a while, it was decided, actually, what's the point of having various classifications? It should just have one classification, which was A1. Hence the expression A1. A1 at Lloyd's. um, Everything's good. Everything's perfect. Then alongside the classification, they would get a a number of years that a ship could go off on its voyages around the world without needing to be surveyed again. So it might be 12A1. So 12 years, it's going to last... And then it can come back. In the ports around London, in the south, they were given a longer period of time of class of avoiding classification. Those in the north, it was a shorter period of time because they didn't necessarily trust ships (laughs) built up in the north. Um, And so there was this sort of difference of opinion um, that caused the society to split in 1799. Um, and then it's also around this time and in the early 1800s, as, um, you know, I'm sure listeners are well aware with the Industrial Revolution, that you get different um, sort of ideas for shipping. So you get iron coming in, you get steam power coming in. And there were some uh, thoughts in Lloyd's Register that we should be flexible with this. We should embrace this. And this was one side of the society. And then there was the other side that would say, no. Iron and steam are bad. Everything needs to be wood and sails. It will be wood oh, and sails so forever. <laughs>
1: they didn't want to register anyone at all if they had an iron or a steel ship.
3: They No, they were very reluctant to. So they would put, um, when eventually they could see that, you know, steam power was being used, they would put a note that says uh, experimental or mm. uh, built of iron. And the ship would have to have two, maybe three surveys a year. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of different things schools of thought going on in the society at the time but eventually this all irons out in 1834 when Lloyd's Register combines as one society and it's at this point that we were moving to uh, we'd already started well Lloyd's Register already started work in Canada um, and then ships that were coming into our ports in Britain from other parts of the world with other uh, you know with ship owners around the world were saying actually We like what Lloyd's Register is doing. Can we have our ships surveyed here, or would you mind popping over to Canada to uh, where uh, where else we're going—Spain, France, wherever it was—and go and surveying our ships over there? So then we start to become global.
1: Yeah, yeah. And 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 from there, I mean, so how global did it become? I mean, was was everyone wanting to have their ships uh, classified by Lloyd's?
3: yeah we became um very very global um <laughs> it seemed that there was not a as a not a continent yeah you know maybe apart from antarctica and the arctic and everywhere but maybe not a continent without lloyd's register on it um and it we started so we in 2019 we celebrated our 150 year anniversary working in china um, we were over in Japan, in Australia, New Zealand, and then over in South America, uh, the North America. We we were everywhere. It seemed. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely amazing. Does that mean that there are archives uh, for, relating to what happened all over the all over the world, or have they all been kind of consolidated back in one place in London?
3: So, what happened with um, staff at Lloyd's Register who were based globally? they would have to send their surveys and, and plans back to the HQ in London for, to, for, for the official classification. So most of the bulk of the archive, our Ship Plan port collection, our corporate archive is based in London. But what we do find is that offices around the world that we still have that, that work for Lloyd's Register have collected their own bits and pieces And surveyors who, you know, were based over there who are either from those countries or from the UK may have gathered things at those offices and just kept them there. So what we're trying to do at some point in the hopefully not too distant future is consolidate everything that could be around the world and look at it and see what there is because there's so much (laughs) we don't know about.
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the exciting things about you guys is is you have such an enormous variety of material which which people can access now and look at, um, but there's. Um just reminds me of a story there's there was a library I used to go to a little private library and it's one of these great places where you take a book off the shelf and behind it is another row of books and then behind <laughs> that is another row of books and they're like three stacked deep no one's got any idea what's there at all um so yeah not only is there so much uh, material that people can look at, at at Lloyd's Register but also um there's the potential for so much more which I think is really really exciting mm. I, I'd be particularly interested in in uh, the relics from um from, from Asia. I think that yeah. would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, what, what kind of material do you have in your archive then? Give us some some kind of idea.
3: Yeah, so we've got a, quite a variety of material. So the bulk of our collection is our Ship Plan and Survey Report collection. So that is that was the business of Lloyd, Lloyd's Register. And from 1834, when the, the society you know, came back together and, and unified, that's when our records really start. Um, and that's where it's meticulous. So a ship would have its survey and then it might have more surveys throughout its long career, hopefully. And then there might be a plan associated with or several plans. And then there'd be correspondence to and from the ship owner, the surveyor, the chairman of Lloyd's register. So you've got that. And that equates to about 1.25 million documents in our archive. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we think there could be more. <laughs>
1: yeah it's interesting that you know it's not just about a certificate for a ship sort of saying yes this has been certified a1 or whatever it is but you've got the whole
4: how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment
0: that's BetterHelp. H E
1: L P. There were some kind of grey areas, weren't there? There was a bit of a mm-hmm. debate about each one when they're trying to work out issues as they arose, and it's in that conversation, I think, that you get a real mm-hmm. sense of um, you know of 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 the history of actually uh, of what's going on here.
3: Yeah, and it's as uh, this is um, so the ship plan Survey port collection because we're digitising it and, and making it freely accessible on our website. It's the first time that th- that collection has been catalogued. So this is the first time we're seeing documents and stories that we, we never knew existed. And what we are seeing is that correspondence between um, ship owners to uh, surveyors, and maybe a ship owner's complaining uh, that a surveyor isn't professional enough, or a surveyor's complaining that the ship owner, we've had one that was was drunk all the time. And there's this correspondence going between the two. Or we have, um, you know, those stories of, um, there was one that we had absolutely no idea about. And it was a surveyor who was in Wales and he was unwell, so couldn't carry out his job. So his wife did it instead. And there were documents going from the ship owners at that yard saying, oh, she's brilliant. And this was the 1850s, 1860s oh so, no, yeah she's brilliant just, just as good if not better than her husband ah. um, we had no idea about her um, so that's incredibly exciting for us uh, these stories that are coming out
1: yeah I, I think um, any any sense of hidden expertise like that is, is, yeah. is really good and then you can you uncover these people that are sort of lurking between the lines of it yes yeah yeah I mean, it's always a challenge with, with any kind of archive but particularly one that's a technical archive
3: mm.
2: or
1: um, that is based around things like ship plans or Mm. or certificates it's very difficult to get to those human Mm. stories but um there are there are wonderful little gems in your archive aren't there of 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 stories which you can Mm. come to
3: yeah we 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 do struggle a bit and um sometimes with, with people just thinking oh it's just boiler plans and between you and I, I'm not a big fan of boiler plans. I find them a bit boring. <laughs> They're pretty to look at, but you know, it's not that exciting.
1: <laughs> it's a challenge for me actually. I'm gonna try and make the boiler plans as, as exciting as possible. Yes. I promise you I'm gonna come back and try and sort this all out.
3: <laughs> if anyone can, uh, I think it'll probably be you. Well, um, <laughs> so yeah, so we we, we do sort of what we're trying to do even more is is bring out the human element the mm-hmm. stories that are in there and lifting those ships from the pages so we are supported by our kind of what we call our corporate archive which now also sounds quite dull but in there we have the uh, we have a sport archive uh, from the cricket club and and the the football clubs and everything we have uh, records of personal records of staff that we're pulling together to build a picture around what was happening with the construction of the ship and then we're taking the the actual ship and what happened to it beyond so um one of one of my favorite uh pieces that i i only ever (laughs) i kind of remembered it this morning and we just absolutely love this it's a survey for a ship um the ship's not particularly famous or important but what's on there are um it's from i think it's from about the 1860s 1870s and there are um cat paw prints (laughs) just all over it and then a suspicious yellow stain that's still (laughs) on the survey and it's things like that where we think oh he's probably working from home (laughs)
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and writing up his survey and his cat's just bothering him <laughs> and he's chewing it away uh, so it's little highlights like that then we also have um, little snapshots of, of history so one document we found recently in our archive uh, is a, a postcard, it's just a small small postcard nothing really that important on the postcard it was sent from one of our offices in Germany to London and it was just I think it just sort of says you know working on a ship at the moment, expect documents soon. Um, but on the front of the postcard are several stamps because this was during hyperinflation. Ah. So the little postcard is full of these stamps um, that gives you that tiny little snapshot in into history at that, that time, you know, having yeah. to spend all that money sending a tiny little postcard overseas. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've got, and I think it's, there are, as, these are these stories that we just, you know, we, we don't know all the stories and we're so keen to get people in to, to look and say, oh, that ship or that person, that link is, you know, we had no idea and, yeah. and build that bigger picture.
1: You talk about opening up the archive and trying to understand it more. Is there a way that volunteers can get involved and to help?
3: Yeah, we're, um, we just want anyone and, and everyone who is interested to... to to look at our archive Uh, we're keen for anyone from volunteers who may have had that maritime experience or not um, who may be you know studying history or interested in it to look at our archive to go through the documents we've made available and to get in touch with myself or one of my colleagues and just sort of say I love that ship love that document love that story I want to do more I want to write about it I want to help in any way at some point and this will be a bit further down the line we're going to be doing crowdsourcing with our archive and we want people to get involved there uh, so there are lots of opportunities um yeah. and all we want is people to go yeah i'd love to <laughs> yeah, let
1: me just add here we we're, we're entering a um a really wonderful period in in history and people wanting to volunteer and to help um and places like Lloyd's Register I mean you're a, you're a beacon of it is um opening up the archive and if you think back to you know not that long ago where archives were very closed it was very very difficult mm-hmm. to actually get in to look at documents that's absolutely not the case so if you are interested in history and you're particularly interested in maritime history do get in touch um, I'll tell you how to do that at the end of the podcast and um, you go and read some documents go and do some of your own research mm-hmm. I mean one of the I think one of the most interesting things I would say this having uh, done quite a lot of work on shipwrecks so are your wreck reports because yes. so on the one hand you've got um, this interest in safety at sea but then it obviously raises the question of of <laughs> What the implication is if something catastrophic goes wrong, and it, it, you know, it inevitably does, does, you know, fall back onto onto Lloyd's, who might have certified a ship um, to be safe, and if that ship then sinks, then what, you know, who is responsible? What the hell's going on? So you have these wonderful wreck reports, don't you?
3: Yes. So from the eighteen nineties, we we get these wreck reports and we get our casualty returns, and the casualty returns um, again are on our website, and they're just this incredible wealth of data um from about how ships have been wrecked or destroyed or whatever's happened to them across the world. And they give an insight into uh you could uh, with historical weather, um obviously during the first and second world wars, there was an idea about what happened there. And anything that could happen to a ship whilst it's out um sailing around the world. So then 1890s, we, we also have the rep reports and these are sort of official documents that attacked to the end of a ship's life. So it's got its first survey, whatever happens in between, and then it's rep report. And it's in these rep reports that we do get some great stories, um, tra- often, of, of course, tragic stories, but sometimes quite interesting. And what they would do is in the report, they would put, you know, what happened, the, the ship, the details, and then they would add newspaper clippings from the wreck at the, at the time. So you get a real snapshot of that ship and the impact it had. So um, one, or a couple of examples I pulled out that I've always really loved. Um, one was for a ship called the Esso Salter from the 1940s. The ship, n- not particularly you know, famous maybe, or, or the career is not necessarily that interesting, but the wreck report has that she was wrecked because she was struck by lightning,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and you've got the newspaper article that that says that's what happened to her. So you get that insight into the the weather at the time and how that struck by lightning, unfortunately, wrecked the ship. Yeah. Um, and it then set, another, her on, it, set
1: her on fire, didn't it? It was um it led yes. to kind of a catastrophic fire.
3: Catastrophic fire, yeah. Um, and she was wrecked uh, after that. So, mm. yeah um and then uh, one other ship the um rms uh, magdalena uh, f- from the 1940s um so she was wrecked after um striking uh, rocks off uh, the coast of brazil um and all lives were rescued thankfully um and she sank and, and everyone was safe but one of the notes from the newspaper articles attached to the wreck report was that the, one of the cargo that w- was included was boxes of beer <laughs> um, and that the report sort of says um, that the bottles of beer remained unbroken, which uh. is also... <laughs> D- D- divine <laughs> is intervention. Great. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> um, so phew, the beer was safe. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so once, whatever happens to it, to the ship, Obviously, once if it's been classed by Lloyd's Register, Lloyd's Register said it's been built to Lloyd's Register rules, standards, and a surveyor has gone along and said that's absolutely fine. It, when it comes to kind of natural disasters, what what can LR do? Uh, but there are some incidents where clearly it was possibly in the design of the ship that meant yeah. that the ship sank, and then questions are raised. And yeah. one interesting one, now that we think about it, is obviously the probably the most well-known maritime disaster being that of the Titanic. Um, Lloyd's Register didn't class the Titanic. Uh, nothing to do with her. Apart from her anchor. We worked on her anchor.
1: That's interesting. So what, how,
3: how, how, how,
1: what's the other option? So say you, you own hmm. the Titanic. How else do you get it get it classed if you don't do yes. it through Lloyd's?
3: <laughs> so um, there were international organisations that were being set up in the 19th century that were classification but there was also the, the, the sort of official government one, uh, the border trade, and that's where the Titanic went. And the, the problem was, after the, the Titanic sunk, was that it was claimed that Lloyd's Register classed her, so Lloyd's Register was blamed. Yeah. And the, the, the builders and the owners said, well, she was built to Lloyd's Register rules and standards. But because the surveyor didn't go, it wasn't, that is not official and they can't prove that they they had been but because because lawyers register was being blamed our secretary at the time andrew scott wrote a very angry letter to the times and just said it wasn't us it wasn't (laughs) our fault we didn't do it don't blame us uh, because it was ruining the reputation of lawyers register but lawyers register were then heavily involved in the safety of life at sea um commission that was set up afterwards so yeah even if it's not our fault we seem to be blamed. <laughs> all about safety. <laughs> but, at you sea. Know, if, so, so with these
1: other wreck reports, if there is a wreck where, where Lloyd's did classify the ship, did mm. it then affect the way that ships were designed, ships were built? Did it affect um, rules of navigation? You know, how how did that did did it kind of move forward if there was a problem identified?
3: Yeah, and this is where Lloyd's Register was always very cautious with new technologies because what they wanted to see was, and this is going beyond iron and and steam and uh, steel, but when nuclear comes in or other forms of building or welding ships, lawyers Register was always very cautious to see what happened to that ship. So they didn't put their name on it explicitly in case something happened. But then if, of course, everything was then fine, and it was written into the rules about how to build an iron ship or a steel ship or whatever it might be, and then something happens, there would be an investigation, um, either officially with with the government or just amongst Lloyd's register that says, ah, probably shouldn't do that again. One example I can think of, and I can't remember the name of the ship, but um, sank not long after coming out of port because the port holes were too low down. Mm. So people had opened the window because they were passengers and wanted some fresh air. But unfortunately, where the ship sort of rolled... (laughs) the water went straight in so that was inside actually maybe there should be something about closing them and moving them up so that they're not um you know letting water in but then there are other things where they yeah that they would always look at what happened and then what they could do to improve it um and to make sure it didn't happen again
1: yeah, I mean, the waterline is one particular aspect of, you know, safety at sea. I think we should save that for another episode. I'm going to come back yes. and talk to you about that. Yeah, um,
3: definitely.
1: Thanks so much for, for that chat. How would people get in touch with you if they wanted to help?
3: Yep, so they can visit our website at heck.lrfoundation.org.uk. Um, they can visit our social media pages, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, which is at LRF Heck, and they can find our contact details on our website.
1: Yeah, and a heck in that respect, is it's a history and education centre, is that
3: right? That's it, yeah.
1: Absolutely, so H-E-C. Um, guys, I very much hope you've enjoyed this brief chat with Charlotte Ward and um, the Lloyd's Register Foundation are very much behind this podcast. They're providing uh, money to allow us to travel and to make some videos and some films and so we shall definitely be coming back to explore their archive over the coming months. Charlotte, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. I did, and I'm chomping at the bit to get into their archives and bring you some of the treasures and stories that they uncover at the Lloyd's Register Foundation's Heritage and Education Centre. We will certainly be bringing you more. Next up from Lloyd's will be the extraordinary tale of the Dunedin, which sailed from New Zealand to England in 1880. So what, you cry? Well, the key point is that she made that journey with a cargo of refrigerated meat, and no one had ever done that before. So she became the first ship to successfully transport a full cargo of refrigerated meat from New Zealand to England, thereby proving that refrigerated meat could be transported long distances, creating meat export industries all over the world and changing the way that we eat fascinating stuff very much looking forward to it Um, do please check us out on social media follow us on twitter on facebook and on instagram we'd love to hear from every single one of you tell us if you're enjoying the podcast how can you help well two things the first you can do is you can leave a review on itunes it's very easy to do just scroll down leave a rating or write a review It's very easy to do indeed. The other thing you can do, of course, is just join the Society for Nautical Research. You can do so at snr.org.uk and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the latest maritime history and to preserving our maritime heritage.